This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Hector Tobar, oh man, I've been reading you for a really long time. You've got the Pulitzer, you are an NBCC finalist, you're a best-selling author, former Radcliffe Fellow, current Guggenheim Fellow, journalist turned professor. And you are also the author of one of my favorite novels ever, The Barbarian Nurseries, which came out in what, 2011? That's right, 2011. Oh, wow. It's been a while. Your new book, though, is nonfiction. It's called Our Migrant Souls. And I'm not going to reveal the subtitle right here because I'm going to let you explain the subtitle because this book is everything. This book is fabulous. I'm so happy to see you. Yes, the subtitle of my book. Well, first of all, I mean, what's so great uh, to be here with you on this podcast and to and to talk to your readers and thank you again for your support for my work over the years. And my current book, yes, it's Our Migrant Souls, A Meditation on Race and the meanings and myths of Latino, in quotes. That's my book. Okay, but you say something early in the book that really got my attention. You don't particularly like the term Latino or Latinx at the moment because you think it's limiting. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, if you look at the root of the word Latino, it's obviously Latin. It's referring to the fact that Most people who are of Latin American descent speak, you know, Spanish, which is a romance language. And in so doing, it anchors this identity um, in in Europeanness. And the fact is that, yes, most of us have European roots, but we also have indigenous and, you know, African roots uh, and sometimes even Asian roots. And so so I think that uh, that Latinx, Latine, Latino uh, Hispanic also, they all sort of, um, they hide that. And, and in, in that sense, they don't really, they don't really capture uh, the fullness of the identity. But of course, what term could? What a label does, it's, it's a shorthand way of discussing where we fit in, in the race and social and ethnic milieu of the United States, which is, of course, also in its way, you know, limiting when it comes to describing the life of an individual or a family or even a community. Okay, so where does mestizo and mulatto, where do those descriptors fall into your sort of timeline of us? Yeah, well, you know, uh, mestizo, uh, like mulatto, is is an old term from a kind of racist notion of, of, of mixing, right? So mulatto is a term invented to describe, you know, a mixed Black and European or Spanish person. Same with mestizo, an indigenous person with, um, you know, with a Spanish European uh, person. Like some writers have in the past, I use mestizo sometimes as a kind of term of endearment, mm-hmm. recognizing its origins in this racist thinking, but also using it as a, a shorthand way to talk about our indigeneity, you know, which is something that's been erased from us. Uh, you know, my most recent trip to Guatemala, I was listening to my uncle, who is a very, very indigenous uh, person, uh, talking about how in his, um, in an indigenous presenting person, even though he won't acknowledge his own indigeneity, but talking about the village where he grew up and how people who are indigenous change their names, you know, when they get a chance to European last names, because a European surname in Guatemala is a way of social climbing, Right. And so this process has happened throughout, uh, you know, throughout our histories. And, you know, most of us, including myself, I, I don't know the, spe- the specificity of my indigeneity 
you know, I just know the features of my grandparents who refused to admit to any in, in indigenous heritage. And so mestizo to me is a nice way of interjecting that into the conversation. One last set of vocabulary words before we go charging into this conversation, because I just want to set it up for folks who aren't as fluent in this kind of vocabulary. It is new territory for some people, not necessarily for all of us, but for some people. And I just want to make sure people can ground themselves in the conversation before you and I do that thing that we do and go off to the races. Ethnicity and race. Uh. Let's talk about ethnicity and race. These two words that people bandy wow. about and man, they have feelings. People have feelings. Yes. Lots of feelings. Well, ethnicity is this notion that a group of people have a common cultural background, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I mean, indisputable, right? So French is an ethnicity. Hispanic is an ethnicity. And race is this idea that there is a biological component to our uh, cultural background, right? So, for example, black and white, there is this idea that biologically, those two conditions are different. And, and racism, derived from race, obviously, racism is this notion that being black or white or brown or mestizo or indigenous or whatever gives you a certain kind of immutable quality, right? So race, when I, you know, when you talk about, you know, a racist notion about white people is that all white people are greedy or rich or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously a racist notion about white. And of course, we all know what the racist notions are about black people and about Hispanic people. Um, now, legally and, um, you know, bureaucratically, those terms are used differently. So, for example, the idea of race is recognized by the United States government. It counts us as according to race. And so a person like me um, has to choose. Am I white, black? Native American or other, because those are the officially recognized races. Mm -hmm. Which races exist is itself a product of history and a product of social conflict. For example, once in the 1930 census, Mexican was a race category alongside white and then Negro, right? Because it was 1930. Um, and so the US government has these notions of race. And so Hispanic is supposed to be, and Latino are supposed to be an ethnicity. You can be any different race and be a Latino person because it's supposed to be this common cultural condition, not race, which is supposed to be this biological thing. Although now scientists have shown that it is meaningless. There is no difference in your DNA between a black person and a white person. There isn't, right? In fact, black two black people will probably have more difference in their DNAs than a black and a white person do. Whatever. So according, but according to this notion, we're supposed to be Latinos are supposed to be this ethnicity. But mm -hmm. as I argue in my book, people see Latino people, the idea of Latino as this race, right? So for example, police describe suspects. They'll say a suspect is white, black, or Hispanic. Uh, and it turns out every country has its own idea of what the race classifications the police should use. So in practice, you know, Latino is treated as another one of the races of the United States alongside white, black, and Native American and Asian. Yeah, and I'm delighted to report we no longer have to check off other. For those of us who have seriously mixed backgrounds, I'm like, right. I'm not other anymore. I get to choose now, which it's the whole thing is weird. The whole thing is totally well, weird. And plus, yeah, if you look at any background, any background has its own history of mixing. Yes. Right? yes and it its own its history <laughs> of the things that, you know, it, 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 you know, Asian is really about the relationship that you, the United States has had 
to these peoples of the empire who you know come from who come from the other side of the Pacific Ocean, right? That's why the Japanese are lumped together with the Chinese and the Koreans and the Filipinos, whereas in England, Asian means essentially India, right? It means the Indian subcontinent. So yeah, these terms are all pretty bizarre, and that's part of the fun of my book is taking it all out apart and showing how absurd it is and how hurtful and how there's ideas of power behind this. Yeah, and I'm going to quote you for a second because this is just a really fun line. Like mutant, Vulcan, or Wookiee, Latino, Latinx, and Hispanic are made-up words of storytellers describing a group of people engaged in an adventure. And I mean, (laughs) okay, we've got Star Wars. You bring in the Donner Party. We are going to get to the Donner Party. You can't write a book about California and not have the Donner (laughs) Party in there. I'm sorry, you just can't. But also, we're talking about the border. We're talking about place. We're talking about geography. We're talking about DACA. We're talking about all of these labels that get applied from outside Mm -hmm. of the community. And then in some cases, there are members of the community that accept those labels. I mean, the parallel I'm going to pull is model minority, which is a phrase and a label I loathe. I cannot stand what it represents. I cannot stand that I am somehow expected to embrace the idea of model minority being applied to Asian Americans, it makes me bananas, (laughs) absolutely bananas. And it's one of the worst tools we have to drive a wedge between communities. And it just, oh, oh. (laughs) Well, there's a, there's a, uh, if I may use the word, there's a dialectic to it. There's kind of two things going on at once with these terms. So they are impositions. So the term black or the idea of Negro is invented as a result of the slave trade. Right. right. So the peoples who come from Africa, they're from Dahomey or they're from Angola, right? Or they're from, you know, the from Gambia, wh- whatever. They don't have a notion of themselves as black. They're brought to the United States. They're called Negroes. They're called blacks. And then black, after a while, it becomes a way of expressing their shared histories with other people from Africa. Right. Right. So that same thing happens with Latino. My companion, my longtime companion mm-hmm. is a Mexican-American. Uh, our, you know, I'm from, my family is from Guatemala. Our kids are Mexican and Guatemalan, but right. they just call themselves Latino for short. Right. right? Because, because they have, because my wife and I, we have these commonalities, right? We both come from families that spoke some Spanish or a lot of Spanish, whatever. So yeah, we sort of, w- these terms are imposed on us, but we also use them to express an alliance. And that's that's definitely the, it's definitely the history of Asian, yeah, right? Uh, especially from the 1970s onwards, right? When you have Chinese and Japanese activists at first, you know, making these alliances, um, so et cetera, et cetera. A lot of it is actually fun stuff when you see people coming into. Yes. I mean, especially like when you see the Young Lords and the Brown Power Movement in the 70s, and also you know the rise of Asian American as even not just a nomenclature but as a political identity. I mean, absolutely. This, this was all very, very radical stuff. But you drove 9,000 miles, 9,000 miles. I did. Around the U.S. talking to people. And how many hours of talking is 9,000 miles of driving? Well, you know, you have to realize that it's like, uh, you know, uh, 10 hours of driving yeah. to get, let's say, from, you know, uh, uh, Salt Lake City to, uh, you know, El Paso. Right. <laughs> That's like 20 hours. And then ten, two hours of talking. So right. <laughs> it was a lot of driving, but it was just a wonderful journey through the through the country and all these different ways of being Latino or Hispanic. 
you talk to people of all ages and you talk to just lots of different experiences. And one of the things I love, though, is you keep shouting out working class intellectuals. Your dad was a working class intellectual. He always valued books. He kept you in the life of books and the world of books, which, you know, kind of accounts for you being a writer. But I do want to talk about this idea of class as well, because class is a huge part of this conversation and where you, quote unquote, belong in the world, right? And the idea that you either are working class and that's it, or you have a very different experience, or you're simply illegal. There seems to be not a lot of middle ground. And again, these are all labels that are being applied and, and in fact, taking away from mm-hmm. actual experience. Well, I, yeah, I think that the dominant image of a Latino person uh, or a Latinx person in the American imagination is of a working class person, of a person worked working in either the service industry or as a farm worker, you know, in agriculture. And that that's part of the 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 racial notions of who we are, that that's actually, you know, the, the racist way of thinking of that is like, we're just naturally hardworking, subservient people, <laughs> you know, who aren't very intelligent or ambitious. That's the sort of very, very general. And, you know, and you can see that it, it you know, plays itself out in many, many ways throughout the culture. But that's that's the sort of idea. And it's very much tied to class. So to me, increasingly working class life in this country is is defined by its interaction with Latino culture. Right. And so, you know, you go to all these places and you see all this mixing. You see black and Latino people mixing. You see white and Latino people mixing in different parts of the country. You know, you go to Appalachia. And, you know, it's not uncommon to find an, an Appalachian family, a white family that's, in, you know, intermarried with the Mexican guy who you mm-hmm. know, showed up to work on the tomato harvest or whatever. To me, this is very extremely, much, you know, tied with class. And I would say that all it, when they begin, pretty much all racial classifications begin with, a, you know, with a class hierarchy. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, with the Chinese, the Chinese come to work on the railroads and so on and so forth. Yeah, we're going to get to the Chinese Exclusion Act. I promise you, we're getting there. We just have some other ground to cover first. Because one of the things, too, the idea of you talking to as many people as you possibly can, this shots back to your role, your work as a journalist for years and years and years. You're a bureau chief in a couple of different places. You were a columnist. I mean, you covered the riots in L.A., which don't we call them the L.A. uprisings now? We don't have to use riots anymore to describe it, do we? Well, to me, it was a, it was an uprising for the first hour, and then it was a riot for the next okay. 25. <laughs> and, okay. Well, I mean, I have to say, I was in Boston at the time, so I was very sort of physically far removed right. from a lot of it. But, you know, this is kind of going back to your roots. So there was a book in 2005 that you did called Translation Nation, which sort of set the groundwork for this as, I don't want to say you're revisiting, but, you know, it's it's been a while. No, yeah, in many ways it is revisiting. You know, I was a really bookish kid, very shy, and journalism forced me to interview people because the only alternative uh, was to make things up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as a journalist, that's basically the one sin that will get you kicked out of you right. know journalism heaven is to right. uh, is to make things up. So you have to go interview people, and so I just developed that as a practice and. And as a writer, you know, the one thing you learn when you interview lots of people is they're always going to surprise you. And everyone is their own, you know, unique little novel that they're, you know, walking around America or the world. 
And so, yeah, I absolutely applied that to this uh, to this book. Now, two thousand, my book from two thousand and five, Translation right. Nation, that was more journalistic in the sense that it was really just it was reporting these lives mm-hmm. and telling stories. And now, uh, you know, eighteen years later, you know, having uh, raised kids and having uh, been a citizen and written novels and being a little, you know, grayer um, and and so forth, uh, you know, this is my reflecting uh, and also having lived through the you know intense anti-immigrant movement of the last you know 20 right. years or so i'm more in um essayist and reflecting mode and the real big inspiration i have to say is james baldwin yeah you know, having read james baldwin uh, later in life um you know especially the fire next time uh, having seen raul peck's incredible documentary uh, I am not your negro and you know that that voice of baldwin's was was inside my head that need to to make uh, an impassioned statement about our human worth, right? Because Latino, the worth of Latino people is constantly being demeaned. It's being lessened and cheapened, right? In American popular discourse in the American media. Yeah, dude, you watched a lot of bad TV and a lot of bad movies, and you write about them in the book. And I have That's to, right. I, I I feel for you. I have seen bits and pieces of some of the stuff you mentioned, and I couldn't finish any of it. I have to say, like, I there are series of television shows where people get all excited and I'm like, yeah, can't do it. Can't do it. Like you just can't have my brain. <laughs> I mean, some, I mean, Breaking Bad deserves his reputation as one of the mm. best, uh, you know, the, one of the best television shows of, uh, of this century so far. Uh, but yes, Breaking Bad is, and, and all the cartel genre are essentially allegories about how white people feel powerless in the world. And, and to be able to break that down and to have that insight that essentially the Latino people in those, in those stories, the good ones and the bad ones are basically standing in for the forces that are, um, you know, driving white people crazy, <laughs> which is data-driven capitalism, you know, break the breakdown of the family. And so Latino people become these symbols of all these things. And, and so the writers who are, you know, very rarely Latino, they're transposing all of their hangups, all of their fears onto these cartel type characters. So that was a lot of fun to take to take apart and very yeah, empowering myself, I have to say. For I'm glad you took it apart, though. Yeah. It was the second season of Breaking Bad, the way it opens. I was just like, yeah, I'm done now. Thanks. <laughs> and I get where the story was going and why it was going. But like, I yeah, it's just that first episode. And I was like, OK, I'm good. Thanks. Mm. Done now. <laughs> Here's the thing. And, you know, it happens to all kinds of communities. Representation, when you're starved for representation, Sometimes it feels like any kind of representation is better than none at all. And it's sort of like we fall into these traps and we see it in the book business too, you know, that stereotypes get perpetuated (laughs) and, you know, always running by Luis Rodriguez is a masterwork. And Mm -hmm. it is absolutely, if you haven't read this book yet, go back, read it. Um, Rodriguez has a complicated history. He was a gang Mm -hmm. member in Los Angeles. Um, He is now a poet. And um, this book is beautiful and you need to read it if you haven't, you know, and certainly this is a conversation that Asian America is having right now. When do you fall in? When, when do you settle for a thing that is not great, but might also right. be true to an extent? Like you teach and you talk mm-hmm. about this early in the book. You talk about this early in Our Migrant Souls, where you've got kids romanticizing their parents. You've got kids trying to explain to you who they are and what their mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. of being Latino is. And sometimes it's, it's a lot. Yes. It's really, it's a lot and it's really rich. You know, yeah. it's, it's, I think that 
the the unwritten narratives of the Latino experience are a lot like Harold Pinter or Arthur yeah. Miller or like James Baldwin or Toni mm-hmm. Morrison. One one problem we face is that I think a lot of uh, Latino writers, a lot of editors, Latino writers are afraid that what they write is 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 going to be it's it's rep- representing all of us. Yeah. So it becomes not so much a work of art as much as it becomes a kind of like poster about us. Yeah. And so there is a real hesitancy to talk about, you know, family dysfunction, which of course families are all families are dysfunctional. <laughs> but you know, and that's what makes each each culture uh interesting is its dysfunctions. And I think a lot of Latino writers are you know, just starting now. We're just starting now to be able to f- have the freedom to explore that. Also, yes, New York publishing. New York publishing um you know, with a very often very stereotypical notion of of what will sell uh this idea that um you know, who who the readers are and what they want to see about our experience. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult moment uh to be a creator and if, you know, film and television, so much money involved, so much risk involved for the creators that they're not willing to take risks on our stories. And so we have this either eternal criminalization in terms of the cartel stories and you know, all these sort of gang stories or eternal victimization, which is the dominant image, right, of the Latino and the mainstream liberal media is of the, you know, victimized immigrant. And neither one of those is, is a complete truth. Well, and you have this great line. I mean, literally, I'm just reading it. I destroy galleys. Anyone who listens <laughs> now, I destroy galleys. But I love this line. Sociology, fate, racism, and the law hang over us. And I want to talk about fate for a second, because all of this, sociology, racism, the law, I get all of that. Right. But fate is an interesting word. And I want to go there for a second with you, because mm-hmm. fate. I mean, you even say it. We live in a time of migration. This is what we do. The U.S. border is everywhere. It's not just along the edge of Mexico. You know, right. the border is everywhere. So, fate. Where does fate come into all of this? Well, I think um, it's it's a way that a lot of Latino people have of explaining how messed up uh, their situation is, okay. and the and, and the the sort of the shades of hopelessness that sort of you know float around them. And so, you know, your your father is one of 12 kids and has this story of starting to work when he was 10 or 11 years old. And he's has all this trauma and, you know, you've lived with this and you and you have no way to escape this. You don't necessarily have an ideology that explains it to you other than pride in your race or pride in your Mexicanness or whatever. And so a lot of people begin to think of it as just something that I I have to live this brokenness. This is just this is just something that was, you know, imposed upon me and there's no escaping it. And, you know, of course, that's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie, but it's a way a lot of people you think about it. Also, people when people feel powerless. I talked to a man from Georgia who's undocumented. Every day he goes out to work, you know, he has a wonderful, you know, uh, upper middle class life in Georgia, owns his own sort of construction business. But every time he leaves, he knows that he could be stopped by the police and deported. And so he says, you know what? I'm out of my control. It's all, it's all with God. You know, I've been a good person in my life, but if God decides it, that's my fate. That's what's going to happen. And so it's a way people have of coming to terms with things they can't change, right? That man in, in Georgia, he can't convince 
you know, the the Republican House to finally allow, you know, an amnesty to go through. <laughs> That's not going to happen. And so his quote unquote fate, uh, it feels sealed to him in that way. And so it's a way people have of explaining things that, uh, that, 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 that just make them feel powerless. I'm going to switch gears for just a tiny second because parts of the book appeared in Harper's Magazine before it was Mm -hmm. published and the New Yorker. And I remember reading the piece that ran in the summer of 2019 Mm -hmm. and you grew up in a part of LA that I am actually pretty close to physically right now. (laughs) It's very close to where I live now. And I love where I live. I, I absolutely, I love my neighborhood. I, you know, I live on the edge of two very vibrant communities and I can choose between the two of them. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And to me, it feels like LA and I hear multiple languages at any given point. And now right. we also have like a third community coming in. It's a good way to live. But one of your neighbors growing up was James Earl Ray, who ultimately went on to assassinate Martin Luther King. And I think I had forgotten that he had spent time in Los Angeles, which is wild because Mm. it means he was not very far from where I am now. Mm -hmm. But I want to bring him into the story, into the context of fear and whiteness. And yet he was living in a piece of the city that was not white. Yeah, his whole life. You know, I I did something that I don't think many scholars have done. I looked up the um, census records for the street. Um, where um, James Earl Ray was born in a in a town in Illinois, and I found that when he was born there in the 1930s, uh, he you know it was there were black people living there mostly. Mm-hmm. It was like half a half black neighborhood, a lot of poor Eastern Europeans mm-hmm. too, people from Ireland, and so James Earl Ray was born into a very diverse world. Uh, his white family was always was very often surrounded uh, by so called people of color, right? And so, yes, and when he lived in Hollywood, he lived uh, 200 feet from a Guatemalan immigrant family, <laughs> you know, and my my Filipino friend, uh, you know, Luigi Tolentino, and he would take a shortcut right past James Earl Ray's building. That neighborhood in East Hollywood uh, is one of the most diverse places in the United States. In fact, I remember in the 1990s, the Los Angeles Times actually found the most diverse census tract in, in the United States, and it was... Uh, you know, somewhere like on Melrose, not too far away from where we live, you know. And so James Earl Ray, extremely poor, born into this poverty, born into, you know, his, his father had a long criminal history. And their explanation for the for having been screwed by history was black people, <laughs> was black people messed up America. And he he clung to that idea to his dying day, you know, and he, of course, it also drove him to kill this prophet of black liberation, Martin Luther King. And so to me, part of, of what this exploration into race, Latino identity, whiteness has led me is to this point of compassion. Really the only way you can live with the fact that you're the target of all of this hatred or oppression is to understand its origins and understand Mm -hmm. who the people are. And just like with someone who abuses you in life, if you, once you sort of fully understand them, eventually you will have compassion for them. At least that's what my therapist says, right? <laughs> Your therapist is not wrong. <laughs> to me, that applies also to the way we think about our society. You know, I don't hate racist white people. I have compassion for them because I understand 
the insecurities or I can get a, I can sort of fathom the insecurities and the history that's brought him to that place. And that's very, very true if you look at the life of James Earl Ray, which is, of course, not to forgive him or excuse him his horrific actions, but it's more to understand, you know, where where that those motivations came from. It's all narrative. It's all narrative. Every, I mean, again, I'm going back. I know I made this point earlier in the show, but the idea that labels are applied to your community by outsiders, the idea that the wall and this, all of the narratives that go around the wall or somehow prop up the wall, what have you, it's all story. Absolutely. And when you can connect with another human being and say, hey, wait a minute, I get, I mean, I'm not Guatemalan American. We know this. Right. (laughs) But you can say all of these things. And I absolutely understand what you're saying because, yeah, in some cases, there's a similarity or there's a shared experience, you know, just change some of the nouns, but it's a shared experience. And in other cases, I read a lot. My world Mm -hmm. got really big because Mm -hmm. I can have empathy for people who aren't me because I read. And that's a really powerful way to be able to live and to have conversations and be able to say, oh, right, the frontier thesis, right? Like, right. <laughs> have you been to the Huntington recently, the Huntington Library? I haven't been there in about uh, six or seven months. Okay. After, yeah. No, uh, this was probably last June. So you might have seen this, but you know, they've got that exhibit right now and it's got the burned out Jack London manuscript. That was oh, lost. yes. Yes. I've yeah, seen yeah, that. Yeah, yes. Right. Okay. So Uh, One of the other buildings further down is the American Art Collection. And I walked in and the first things I see are sort of these classic, very flat paintings of people that you would see in, say, New England or upstate New York. Mm -hmm. All the stuff that I grew up with. I'm like, but wait, I'm in Pasadena. I don't want to see this. This is not interesting to me. How did all of this stuff make it 3,000 miles on a wagon somewhere? Like, why is this here? This, Mm -hmm. This belongs you know, back East and we have an entirely different world here. And yet, you know, we're still looking to class and power and old structures and systems and all of this kind of thing. And it's like, even in the art. And then of course there's the other building that has all the stuff from Europe and I'm really super not interested in that. (laughs) None of this please. But all of these pieces, right? Like ultimately they're all narratives. Each of those buildings is a narrative. Yeah, and absolutely. And I just, um, for me, from an early age, I've been fascinated by United States history. Mm-hmm. And and I'm really fortunate that in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, so many historians and thinkers have worked to to show, um, you know, the narratives that we, didn't, we did mm-hmm. not see. You know, to take this journey through Latino, Latinx, and to arrive mm-hmm. in Black history, or to arrive at the history of of whiteness, mm-hmm. or even going to my family's Guatemalan, Eastern Guatemalan village right. and finding that there is this Chinese history, all of these things, uh, you know, overlapping. And, and that's why, you know, I arrived at this conclusion, as you said before, uh, the notion that mixing and migration are just these human constants. You know, United States history is, you know, California history is definitely a migration story. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, those narratives of, of migration and moving and mixing are at the heart of all of our experiences. And I mean, you touch on the Chinese Exclusion Act, you touch on the railroads, you even bring in the Holocaust, to be honest, because trauma is passed from generation to generation. Like we know this, there is actual scientific proof that generational trauma exists and it repeat, like it shows up physically in 
your body, which I think a lot of us suspected, but you know, it was nice to have science say, oh no, it's not all in your head. You actually are physically right about something. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I talked about the Holocaust because my father's third marriage was, uh, he, he married a Jewish woman and we, you know, I, I married into a Jewish family Yeah, and I learned about the Holocaust, you know, at an early age. Um, and then I just have always had this fascination with the Holocaust. And I ask myself eventually, you know, my first novel, The Tattooed Soldier, which is about a Guatemalan death squad killer, really has a lot of Holocaust themes in it. And I ask myself, is this something that's been passed down to me from my family history? Not in addition, I mean, not just because I've had this Jewish family for a while. I still do. I have two sisters who are Jewish, but also because you know, in my indigenous Spanish, you know, history, Guatemalan history, there's all this violence, the violence of empire, right? Yeah. Has something been passed down in my psyche that draws me to these stories to want to sort Mm -hmm. of understand them? And that's, that's, that's what I ask in the book, you know, and yeah. But also we're Americans and our country does not have a great track record for doing the right thing in Central and Southern America. And Guatemala is one of those countries where, you know, essentially we walked in and said, no, we'd like this guy instead. We have done some very bad things in El Salvador and Nicaragua and Guatemala and whatnot. And I do think that becomes part of our story, too. But if you talk Mm. to some younger people, and I know you're around younger people much more than I am, but not everyone has the context for that. It's wild to me. Like there are some because we don't teach it. You had to chase a lot of this information when you were an adult and a working journalist. Yeah, you know, to me, it's, it's sort of a sin. Mm-hmm. That your that your average California public school student doesn't learn anything about, say, the Salvadoran Revolution right. or the 1954 coup in Guatemala, because there are so many Central Americans, you know, in California now, and those those events are now events of California history. I mean, yeah. my my family we become California residents because of uh, of the CAA's involvement in Guatemala in 1954. Um, there are so many Salvadoran uh, families here because of the, that incredible Salvadoran revolution, of course, the counter-revolution. And so there isn't a tremendous amount of ignorance isn't quite the right word, but of just like a lack of knowledge of this history. And when you teach it, you know, I teach here at, uh, at UC Irvine and I teach in these big lectures, I can just see people's, you know, eyes light up yeah, just yeah, yeah. as they as they learn this history. So, and I try to touch on it you know, in my, in the, in the book and, and to reveal some of these histories to people. I think it's really important. I mean, this frontier, can we go back to the frontier thesis for a yes. second? Cause one, I love this. And two, if you're not Tongvin, you're an immigrant to California. I don't care when right. your family right. showed up. I don't care if you were here in 1702. Guess what? If you're not Tongvin, you're an immigrant to California. And I am one of those immigrants, you know, I listen, I, I love this place, but you know, I am a transplant. When I think about Boston, I'm like, yeah, the Boston's popping up again. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's stuff you carry with you from wherever you're from. But the frontier thesis, I think, is really important. I think it does shape some of the labels that get applied to the Latino and Latinx community. So let's explain what the frontier thesis is. Yeah, th- that's this idea put forward uh, by American historians towards the end of the um, 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. That what made the United States unique was this open frontier, that essentially the European people who would become Americans and create this country called the United States, mm-hmm. that what made them particularly special was the fact that they had this open land, they conquered nature, the Native Americans in this kind of thinking are part of nature. That kind of thinking 
informs the way a certain kind of white American still thinks about their country. And so Latino people become kind of substitutes for the Native Americans, right? So in, you know, the old cowboy and Western movies, the uh, pioneers are out crossing the, you know, Great Plains and they're attacked by the Indians and they all have rifles to defend themselves, you know, against the Indians who are this barbarous force of nature. And so that's the way Latino people are seen, where these people who are, you know, from this barbarous, this barbarous territory to the south, and we are constantly, uh, you know, uh, causing danger and peril, you know, to, uh, to, to white America. That to me is that sort of frontier, you know, thesis thinking mm-hmm. applied to the here and now, right? That's how the frontier thesis implies. It has been kind of great to see the evolution of American history, right? And how we teach it now and the way we talk about it and the way we open it up in ways. I mean, I was taught American history in sort of very specific beats. And I remember when I first learned about the Japanese incarceration camps during World War II, and I kind of lost my mind. I was maybe 11, and I lost my mind completely. And I'm looking at all of the adults around me going, and they're all sort of cavalier. And I remember an old teacher of mine saying, well, we just didn't know. No one told us. We just didn't know. And I said, well, you know now. You know now. And my... 11-year-old indignant self. Oh, I was so mad. <laughs> well, you know, it works in uh, in we're several ways. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you just can't blame the education system right. or, you know, machinery of, of history. It's also because very often our parents and our ancestors want to protect us from that history. Right. Right. So a lot of people, and I mentioned someone, I quote somebody in my book, uh, Gloria Arianus, this, uh, you know, Tongan activist. Who grew up not knowing that she was Tongva. She thought of herself as Mexican-American because her mother wanted to hide it from her to protect her because her mother had this experience of being Tongvan, meaning that you're going to be ridiculed, that you're going to be forced to sit in the back of the class. or And so a lot of times we um, erase those histories from our past. You know, a lot of Salvadoran kids, you know, grow up not knowing anything about the Salvadoran Civil War. And it's not just because the school system doesn't teach them, but it's because very often their parents are trying to protect them from these traumas. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into that erasure. And as I discussed in my book. Right. But here's the thing. Now we can start to change those conversations. I mean, you're working with kids. And when I say kids, you're working with college students. Yes. The opening of Our Migrant Souls is so fabulous because you've written it in the close second person. That voice is so intimate and it's so immediate. And it's exactly the kinds of things we need to be talking about. Listen, I loved school and I loved my teachers. But when you find out that, you know, you're the first person they'd pack up and pop on a bus. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, that's not okay. (laughs) Especially, I mean, I was the only pigment in my world until about ninth grade. So I was integrating every single space I was in. So, you know, you talk about otherness in the book, you talk about, you know, all of the labels that get applied. And it's just, well, when you find your history, you really kind of don't want to forget it. And I think that's a piece of the story that that's a piece of the narrative that people need to remember just because they might not know it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. Well, yeah, and and you talk about the opening of the book because I mean, to me, that was one of the great gifts of being a university professor, is of of seeing people have this emotional and intellectual reaction uh, to learning about their own histories, and also to be given a forum where they can work it out. Because that's my most of my classes have this writing assignment where I ask, just tell me a story about the Latinx experience. 
and and usually their family stories, uh, memories, and and whatnot. A lot of coming out stories too. Yep. And so it's just it's just to me um, just to see people recognize that this part of themselves is also this intellectual capital that they own, mm-hmm. right? That yeah. being Latino isn't just this thing that you suffer, but it's also um, itself is this subject of intellectual inquiry, you know, yeah. and that, that to me is, uh, has been a wonderful experience and, and one that I didn't really expect or anticipate when I became a professor. Was that the biggest surprise for you though, putting together the book? I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, obviously you and I have gone back and forth over here's mm-hmm. some really rough stuff and here's some stuff that just delighted us to no end. And here's just reality. But I mean, being able to put your students' voices on the page like that, because they are the future. I mean, I'm very optimistic now after reading this. I feel much better about many, many things. That's great. (laughs) Because honestly, people are doing the work. They're really doing the work. And it's great to see. But also just, you know, it's nice to read a few pages and be like, oh, the kids get it. They totally get it. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things you learn when you work with, uh, you know, with uh, 20 year olds and, you know, uh, undergraduates is that the light never goes out. And, you know, every year we get a little older and they're the same age, right? Because every year there's a new class admitted and that light of curiosity and, uh, and questioning just doesn't go out. And yes, it's the I'm, I feel like I'm witnessing the birth of American literature, what's going to be American cool. literature in 20 years, because as you know, it can take 20 or 30 years to make uh, someone into a writer, to become a writer. It's, um, you know, literature is, is this, it's, it's the opposite of being a ballerina. You, as your body deteriorates, you become, you become better at it. It's wonderful to see. And I'm very, very optimistic. Uh, because of the intelligence and the fortitude and the soul and the heart uh, that I see uh, in in my young readers. And I think, too, they are, let's put it this way, they're on to us. They're on to us in ways, you know, we think we're so clever keeping our secrets and all of this. And they're like, no, we're going to work around that. We're going to, we're just, we're going to do a new way. If this doesn't work, the way we've been doing things, we're going to find a new way to do it. And I think that's actually really exciting because I mean, you and I are sort of stuck in this weird generation where the people ahead of us are very, very settled in a lot of ways. And yeah, right. they're not going to talk about stuff. And we navigated that to the best of our ability. But we still right. also didn't have a lot of the language that kids now have. And they're like, yeah, you, you can just stand over there for a second. We've got this. We've got this. Right. We've got to right. figure it out. And Absolutely. a lot of that shows in our migrant souls. And I really, I just, this book is a treat. Like, it really is a treat. And beyond like, Combining the Donner Party and Star Wars, which only you can do. Like I, <laughs> you are such an Angelino. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, you are such an Angelino, my friend. But it made me laugh. I was just like, okay, here we go with the Donner Party because you can't have a narrative about California without the Donner Party, right? And and this one also involves, uh, you know, cannibalism and. But it does, and it involves us against one particular person. So yeah. I guess we'll leave that as an Easter egg for the readers. This yes, I would. I <laughs> people should be able to enjoy the read as much as I did because I right. got to honestly. I mean, I didn't even look at any of the copy that came with the book. I was just like, oh, it's Hector. And you seem to alternate fiction and non. Right, the last book was a novel. The book before that was nonfiction. So is this going to be the pattern going forward? Yes. So the next thing is yes. maybe a novel. <laughs> Yes, because I'm working on a novel right now, oh, a series of novellas, actually. Okay. 
I love writing fiction. I love writing nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I love the way they feed off of each other. You know, it's it's wonderful to be in the realm of the imagination, but it's also great to be out talking to people, to be, um, you know, questioning and uh, the real world and trying to make real world narratives, nonfiction narratives. Uh, yeah, it's 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 wonderful to go back and forth. And I think they're very much interrelated genres, as many people have said before. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And this is where I'm going to come back to my girl, Araceli Ramirez, for a second. Oh, right. <laughs> In Barbarian Nurseries, I love this woman and I have missed her. And I cannot believe this novel is more than 10 years old. It feels like, right. feels like it just came out yesterday. I mean, I have always loved this book and it has always felt very very LA. And yes, I know part of it takes place in Orange County, but really it's an LA novel. Just trust right. me, it's an LA novel. Do you miss that book? Do you miss those characters? That felt like a personal book in a way that So Tattooed Soldier and The Last Great Road Bum. Yeah. Yeah, they the did. Those both felt a little like you'd step back a tiny bit. Right. And Barbarian Nurseries, I sort of felt like you were right there with me, sort of walking me through LA. Well, yeah, you know, I live in LA. I actually now I commute back and forth between Orange County and Los Angeles. So I'm in the worlds of those books because there's a part of the novel begins in, in, you know, suburban Orange County. Mm-hmm. All those books have their, their audiences and they've had their, their lives uh, post publication. And, and that book seems to be uh, gaining uh, a lot of readership because, you know, there's an undocumented protagonist. Uh, in it, all kinds of accolades have come to it. Um, Sean McDonald at FSG just published a, a ten-year, a tenth anniversary edition, and it was named to an LA Times list of the sixteen, uh, yes, you know, best novels of 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 Los Angeles of all time. That mm-hmm. was really wonderful to see. Araceli is is perhaps mo- more my alter ego than any other uh, you know fictional character mm-hmm. I've I've written about or created. So yeah, she's a wonderful she's a wonderful part of my family. And I'm so, and when I saw, there might've been some yelling. There might've been oh, some yelling when sweet. I saw the yes. list. I was like, yes, this absolutely belongs here. So <laughs> I'm shouting it out again because I will not stop yelling about Barbarian Nurseries. And especially because it captures LA as LA. So wait, when are you turning in the new manuscript for the novellas? Oh, no, I, the, who knows? Okay, know? so we have to 2024, 2025, 2026, who knows? You know, you never know with these things, especially since, my current project is nine novellas and I've written one and a half and okay. I, you know, and it covers approximately 2,200 years of Los Angeles. History. Okay, fine. I'll wait. I'll be patient, but I am yeah. seriously. That thank you. Thank you. That's that, that means so much to me. We best were, idea. Yes, thank that you. 2,200, 2,200 years of Los Angeles history. I'm like, yes, yes. I'm ready for all of this. Thank you very much. Anyway, Hector, it's always good to see you. We should do this more often. Our Migrant Souls is out now. If you haven't read The Barbarian Nurseries, that's out in paperback. Go get that too. Thank you so much, Miwa. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been waiting for this conversation. Jonathan I has written a new biography of Dr. Martin Luther King. It's called King, A Life, and it's the first new biography in 30 years. And David Garrow, who wrote the last sort of big biography of King, Bearing the Cross, which won the Pulitzer in 1987, he's even said your book is now the book, which 
I've been a bookseller for a really long time. I've never heard that happen before. That blew my mind. And and Dave, Dave is a very generous guy. He helped mm-hmm. me tremendously with this book to begin with. But yeah, I've never seen a biographer. And it made me think about whether whether I'd be comfortable and confident enough to pass the torch in that way when someone <laughs> writes a better book than mine. It's, it's incredibly generous of him. I just, it knocked me over. And also having read King of Life, he's right. It's a really, really fantastic book. And it's really necessary too, because you go to places that we haven't necessarily seen with Dr. King before. It's a much fuller portrait than we've been given previously. And also it's partially because there were new FBI files. I shouldn't say new files. There was a new release of files that had been held since the beginning of time. And so far as I can tell, in 2018, is that when you started working on this book? No, I started before that, knowing that there were new files already and that there were more to come. And I just want to say one important thing about mm-hmm. the uh, about what Dave Garrow said yeah. and also how it relates to Taylor Branch's wonderful books. My book is different, and I set out to do something different than those guys did. Um, I wanted to write a more intimate portrait of King. Um, Garrow's book is really as much about the SCLC as it is about King. And Taylor Branch's book is this epic, sweeping um, trilogy, thousands of pages on the entire civil rights movement. I wanted to write something much more personal where you were along for the ride with King, where you felt his pain, where you could feel the the gut punches and and celebrate the glory and really cry um, when when he cries. Um, and, and and it's a different kind of a book. So I, yeah. I don't think that I uh, I'm I'm supplanting either of those great works. I think I'm a, I'm supplementing them. I think there's room on the shelf for everyone. And what Taylor Branch did, and I love those books. I love the Taylor Branch books. I really, those, uh, my copies are not in great shape. Let's put it that way. There are many, many notations on, on those copies and whatnot. He's so focused on sort of a bigger picture, even more so than Garrow in a lot of ways with the SCLC. So yes, there's space on the shelf for everyone. We should be clear about that. But let's go back to you for a second. How long did it take to research? How many people did you talk to? How many hours did you spend interviewing? (laughs) Oh, I don't even know. I I started this book six years ago and I told Mm -hmm. my kids that I challenged them to learn more in school than I'm going to learn in the next six years working on this book. And I think I may have uh, learned more than they did, which is a sad statement about the state of our public education. But anyway, we won't get into that. I did hundreds of interviews. I found dozens and people, maybe, um, you know, uh, more than a hundred people who knew King personally, knew him well. And that was part of the uh, reason I set out on this journey is that I I knew that the window for that was closing, that this might be the last chance to do a biography with living witnesses, with people who knew King, including people from childhood. I mean, his older sister, God bless her, is still living. And I wanted to seize that opportunity. And it was just one of the great adventures of my life to, to get to travel the country and meet people who were close associates of of Dr. King. I want to go back to Montgomery for a second. 1955, Dr. King and his wife, Coretta, have just moved to Montgomery from Boston. He's finishing his PhD, I guess, but he's taken his first posting as a pastor. And he's brought into the Montgomery bus boycott. And you can see him Getting his legs, he delivers the sermon in December of 55 that sort of makes everyone say, hey, wait a minute. He just ends up on everyone's radar. And you ask a question that other folks have asked over time, which is, what made him special? How was everyone drawn to him? How did he lead? And I kind of want to start there a little bit because it's sort of, it's so early in his career. And if you think, you know, he was assassinated in 1968, it's 13 years. That's not very long. 
No, and he's 26 years old when he's thrust into this moment, this this position of responsibility. You know, I think about so many great heroes throughout history, or even in in the movies, right? There's this moment where they have to make a choice. Am I willing to do this? Am I willing to give up my life that I've known so far and take this chance and step into something that I don't know where it's going to take me? And and King is 26. He's like a lot of young black people at the time. He's he's passionate about fighting for for change, but he's not imagining a world in which he becomes suddenly this this national leader or even really a local leader. He's he's a pastor of a new church. He's got a new baby at home. He's trying to figure out how to lead this new congregation. And suddenly this boycott of the buses in Montgomery begins and they ask him to be sort of the spokesman. He's not even the head of the associate of the Montgomery Improvement Association. He's he's just serving as a spokesman because in part because he's new in town and he doesn't have any enemies. So, you know, there's no rivalry among the among the protesters, and in part because everybody knows he's he's a terrific speaker. Um, and that's where it begins. And 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 that ability to speak so beautifully is really um his superpower that it ignites the community, the media falls in love with him. So this in part becomes a national story. There are other boycotts, there are other uh, civil rights protests cropping up around the country. But the media from the North in particular falls in love with this guy with the advanced degrees in theology and this beautiful uh, speaking ability and, and this fire in his belly to take on the establishment. It's just a great story. And that's why it goes national. I'm not sure it would have gone national in the same way if Ralph Abernathy, who was obviously fearless and brilliant and brave, I'm not sure it would have happened with him. No, I think you're right. And one of the interesting bits of the story you pull out too is at one point, Dr. King's home is firebombed. And he gets out on the porch and sort of the remainder of his house. And, he, and he's speaking to the community. And he speaks to the community in such a way that everyone sort of, as you describe it, starts to act as if their own houses had been firebombed as well. And they were not going to be intimidated by this act of violence. And I just, I love the idea of that moment. I love that moment just on its own. Was it the speaking that really made him a leader? It feels like there was more than just his ability to command attention. Yeah. And, and I think you you hit on a, on a key point is that when his house is firebombed, I mean, a lot of people I talk to from the South, a lot of you know older Black people talk to me about that, that fear and how fear was really used to keep them in order. Um, it was meant to keep them from, from demanding too much. And when Dr. King's house was firebombed, when he was stabbed in the chest, when his home was shot at again, you know, months later, he would not allow that fear to rule him. And the people of Montgomery began to feel that same sense of confidence. We don't have to be afraid anymore. And that had this huge effect. And over and over again, King, throughout his career, every time there's a moment when he might have been tempted to step back or at least tone things down, at least put himself out of harm's way. No, he stepped into the breach over and over again. And to me, that's the kind of courage that um, that really um, cemented his following that made people say, I'll follow this guy anywhere. And even if the FBI wouldn't investigate the bombing, that's sort of when the national media steps in and says, hey, wait a minute. People start calling him a modern Moses of Alabama and Alabama's Gandhi and sort of really start propping him up in a way that is going to make him a target for the FBI. And we know some of the story. We know some of Hoover's story, but you have much, much more to work with here because of the release of the papers in in 
2018. But can we just start the conversation about, because the FBI is going to come through this and we're going to get to Johnson in a second, but the new information. Yes, it's it, and it, this new information, the FBI's pursuit, harassment, attempt to destroy King, it, it, it goes hand in hand with the kind of other fear we were just talking about, the fear that um, white segregationists, that white lawmen were trying to inculcate. They understood that this was a way to control, to maintain the power dynamic. You know, white supremacy um, was a real thing. It is still a real thing. And it involves power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you allow change, if you allow um, that dynamic to change, then you lose power. And the people in charge did not want to lose power. And that was one of the main messages that J. Edgar Hoover accentuated all of his career. It wasn't just Black people. Black people were one of the many people that he feared might change the power dynamic in America. And communists were another that he was that he was concerned with. And then he managed to combine the two by, by claiming that there was a lot of communist influence within the civil rights movement. That was one way for him to stoke that kind of fear so that it wasn't just FBI agents. He, he was spreading that message to the entire country. Mm-hmm. And that message was infiltrating our leaders in Congress, our, the White House. And, and Hoover knew exactly what he was doing. And ultimately, I would argue that message um, affected people who wanted King dead. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. So 55 is the start of everything. 57, King is on the road for hundreds of thousands of miles and delivers more than 200 speeches and sermons in the span of a year. And we're seeing everything build and build and build. And then 61, we've got Freedom Rides. And you can see the momentum. But all of this community building is happening. All of this movement is starting to... And, you know, when we think of the 50s, that's not necessarily what people are thinking about. I think lots of folks really associate civil rights much more with the mid to late 60s. And they sort of leave off the ends of the 70s and the 50s. (laughs) Right. As we're building and his career is taking off, what did you learn? What did you find out that just sort of felt new to you in that, call it 57 to 61? One of the things I love about King during this period is that he really doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't have a, a, a plan. He's being, he's learning as he goes along and he's improvising as he goes along. So the sit-ins begin and the sit-ins are led mostly by students. And they say, we don't want you, Dr. King. You know, we don't, we don't need the grownups telling us what to do here. He's, he's like, you know, 30. Right? And King, to his credit, says, cool, I'm here to help if you need mm-hmm. me. And then often they say, hey, would you come and drop in on our, on our actions? Because we right. know that the national media will follow you. And he's okay with that. So he's willing to adapt. He's willing to work with other people. He doesn't always feel like he has to be the star of the show, the center of the attention. And he's really good at figuring it out as he goes along. Yeah. So he's pulled into protests in Atlanta where he's, his father has begged him not to get involved. He's pulled into protests in Albany, Georgia, uh, which doesn't go well at all. Some people think it's a terrible failure. And he learns from that. So by the time he gets to Birmingham, he understands what went wrong in Albany and how he can use that to his advantage. And he becomes a lightning rod. He realizes that his, his great ability is in, is in luring the press in getting racists to overreact, which makes for a better news story. And then you can use that pressure, that kind of public change of opinion, that awakening to the plight of Black people in the South 
to start to move the needle on public policy and, and lean on the president, lean on Congress. It's not easy and there's no formula for it and nobody's ever really done it before. So King is is really like flying by the seat of his pants and that that ability to sort of to fail is not something we think about when when we think about King's greatness. It's certainly never been presented you know, in class, let's put it that way. I mean, it's not something you learn, maybe if you're studying at a college or a graduate school level, but when you're first introduced to King as an elementary school student, none of this would ever be discussed. It's here are the speech, here are the major speeches, here are the books, here are the major points. But at the same time, I really appreciate sort of this side of him and being able to sit with that as I'm reading through your book. But watching everything build for him and then he wins the Nobel and then suddenly, you know, the critics are really sort of coming in a way that, you know, before there'd been a little bit of sniping, but then suddenly, you know, oh, the prophet from Oslo, like you can hear sort of the change in the air. And that's the first, 64 is sort of the first turning point, it feels like. People are concerned he's going to be a little big for his britches because now he's not only talking about race, he's not only talking about poverty. He's starting to hit bigger pieces of the world. He's already done the India trip. The India trip was 59, yeah? Right. Okay. So he's starting to have maybe bigger ambitions as well, and that's starting to freak some people out. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is really important to recognize with King is that he, he didn't get more radical. He was saying the same thing all along, just that we began to hear it more and we began to appreciate it more. And he felt like he had the the bandwidth now to start addressing some of these bigger issues but it all came from Jesus it all comes from the bible he's saying you know poverty inequality war materialism these things are wrong so it's easy for us to focus especially in those early years on on the the, the fight for integration and that's very simple especially for the northern press to understand and right. to take sides on. But when King starts saying, hey, you know, you got problems in the North too. Your schools are, <laughs> are, are just as segregated as Selma's. Your public housing, your housing in general, mm-hmm. um, you know, white flight is exploding. And when he starts calling those things out, suddenly, oh, well, can't we just go back to talking about Bull Connor? You know, the, the white media is not as comfortable with that. So King starts taking these things on because it's his true belief, not because it's, he's ambitious and he wants more power or because he wants to make more noise. You know, his beliefs have been informed all his life by, by his religious study. And, and he's just saying, I'm ready to talk about these other things now as well. So um, but unfortunately, that does make him more enemies. It makes, um, you know, the FBI see him as more of a threat. It makes white people in the North a little less inclined to get on board. Um, and if he also at the same time starts finding that, you know, some of the more radical Black leaders think he's too conservative because he's still talking to the president and he's still trying to negotiate. So he's getting it from all sides. And and one of the other things that I want to mention is that he struggles with that. He's not immune to feelings of of insecurity, to doubt. He wants to be liked. I, I say in the book that one of the most amazing things about him is that he's a protest leader who doesn't really like conflict. Personally, he hates conflict. He wants everybody to to agree to get along. He has a hard time firing people. He has a hard time saying no to people. It's fascinating, and it, it just makes his struggle all the more interesting and relatable. Yeah, which also brings us to Chicago in 65, and also there's an L.A. trip in 65 as well. And those seem to be moments that really shake him up as well. And, you know, there are people who have said, oh, well, Martin didn't make the movement, the movement made Martin, which I think everyone would agree is certainly true. 
Chicago did not respond well to him. And it wasn't just the Daily Machine. It was really from, as you said, all sides. And Los Angeles certainly was not having it as well. Can we talk about those two moments? Because I don't think a lot of people even remember that those happened. Well, in Los Angeles, you know, riots uh, erupted after a black man was killed by police. Mm -hmm. And um, King felt he had to respond. His advisor said, don't go out there. Nothing good can come from this. You can't control the situation. It's, It's too dangerous and it's not what you do. And King said, it's what I have to do. I'm opposed to violence. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm opposed to police brutality. I'm opposed to the racism and segregation that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's there too, just because it's a little harder to grasp. A little, that doesn't mean I can avoid it. So he goes there and, and of course, you know, runs into uh, city officials who, who just want to see him leave. And, and the same thing happens in Chicago. He says, against the advice of his, of his closest um, counselors. I can't speak out on racism and segregation in the South and ignore it in the North. It's the same thing going on. It's just, it's just, you know, more subtle. Mm -hmm. So he's determined to go North and to make a point. Um, Again, for, for King, these aren't just like media stunts. He believes that if he's going to accomplish his larger goal of spreading justice, making America live up to its promise of equality, that he's going to have to do it everywhere, that you can't just do the easy glaring examples in, in the South. So he chooses Chicago because he thinks that it's well-organized and that he can really create a, a new kind of movement there. People who are just as as radical and brave as he is, um, people like Bayard Rustin and, and Stan Levison and are saying, don't do it. Right. You don't know what you're getting into there. It's a different kind of, of, of a battle and we're not ready. And King said, I have to do it. And it, and it doesn't go well. And all the things that his advisors warned him of do come true. But King doesn't, doesn't stop there. He keeps doubling down and saying, this is the only way I know how to do this because I'm following my beliefs. Again, because the FBI is, is harassing him and bugging him's phones. We can hear these conversations. We can read the transcripts. And it's, it's really painful. It's, it's heartbreaking to hear him trying to make his closest friends understand that this is not political, that this is who he is. You say it too in the book. At one point, you say that Los Angeles and Chicago change King. And the idea that you have access to these wiretap transcripts that King knew, I mean, he found out in 66 that he was being tapped, or did he find out before then? I think he knew his associates were being tapped. Okay. Then. All right. But it's not clear he ever knew that his home and okay. an office were tapped. The FBI gets the taps on the basis of Stan Levinson. They say Stan, who's one of King's closest advisors. And you say he's also his ghostwriter, which I didn't know. He yeah, King had a lot of ghostwriters, but okay. Levinson was one of his big ones. Hoover says, oh, no, this guy's a communist. So this is how we're going to get the wiretaps. And that's essentially where we go from there. I mean, part of me is just completely horrified that it happened. And part of me for the historical record is very glad we have the information that we have, because the story was so manipulated. And, you know, King's image has been manipulated by so many people for so long. And here you are saying, well, actually, no, I've done the homework, and I've done the reading, and here's what you don't know. And, you know, for a long time, Lyndon Johnson was sort of presented as the guy, right? And this is not to diminish anything Johnson did. He did some amazing, amazing things, especially with civil rights legislation. But it seems like Hoover was really pulling his, yanking his chain a little bit, especially when it came to King in a way that actually ultimately sort of cleaved to their relationship, King and Johnson, 
who seem to have been working together well enough. And then, though, you've got these transcripts and... Can we talk about LBJ yeah, for a second? It's sad because when when JFK is assassinated, one of the first calls he makes is to is to MLK, and and they're friendly. You know, he calls him Martin, and um, even after Johnson's reelection, he, he he makes a point of calling King one of the first people he calls to thank him for his support. And then you begin to see, and you can hear it because not only do we have the transcripts of these conversations, we have the audio tapes because LBJ was recording most of the calls from the White House. And we can listen. Anybody can go listen at the LBJ Library to these calls, and you can hear the tone changing. You can hear the friendship shriveling and dying. And they still need each other. They still work together, but the warmth is gone. And why? It's because LBJ is getting a, a steady stream, a shockingly steady stream of memos directly from J. Edgar Hoover about the most personal details of King's life that are oftentimes just tawdry, that have nothing to do with King's activities that in any way that would that would matter to the White House. It's just that both men seem to be enjoying spying on King's personal life. And it's really sad. And you cannot help but think that this changed history. This changed the balance of their relationship and limited King's effectiveness. He no longer had this great working relationship with the president. Right. Yeah, I have to say, I understand that in the historical context, J. Edgar Hoover was, you know, he created law enforcement as we know it. And all, you know, he was bringing law and order to a lawless state and all this other stuff. But frankly, I would personally very much like to have time travel and go back and pop him in the nose because I just, (laughs) the dude is a problem. The dude is a problem. And, you know, actually, there's this great new biography of him that's like 900 pages. Yeah, Beverly Gage. Beverly Gage. Wonderful. Which that's what I've heard. It's fantastic. And I'm like, I'm not sure I can spend 900 pages with this guy. I just, you know, and obviously that says more about me as a reader than it says about her work as a historian. But this guy, J. Edgar Hoover, is a problem. He is not a good guy. He's just, he's a creep. He's a complete creep. Well, you don't have to pop him in the nose or you can't, but you could take his yeah. name off of the headquarters of the FBI. I think that that building should be renamed tomorrow. I'm profoundly uncomfortable by the idea that there are people running around who still think he's all that in a bag of chips, you know, and then you see this rivalry with Robert Kennedy and Hoover. And it's just, it's, it's chaos. And it's all of this ego. It's all of this personal ego where all of these people think they're doing the right thing for the country. Let's point out that it's also racism, that there's a sense that black people are a threat, that they're not Mm -hmm. quite treated like real Americans, Mm -hmm. that they must be up to something. They must be trying to destroy what we've built here. And there's a there's a sense of, you know, white Christian nationalism at the base of everything that Hoover's doing. And, and there's a great new book about that by uh, Lerone Martin that I would recommend to folks. They're not targeting King just because of his, because they think his sex life makes him a hypocrite. And they're not targeting him because they think he's surrounded by communists. There's former communists everywhere in the United States in the 60s. They're doing it because they they see a threat to the order. And that means the, you know, the white order that they've come to know and love. Yeah, we're taping this right after Harry Belafonte has died at 96. And he was an advisor to Dr. King, along with Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis and Sidney Poitier and Dick Gregory. I want to talk about how he helped Dr. King become Dr. King, because he's also doing a lot of this work while all of this terrible FBI stuff is happening. And all of Johnson is losing you know, faith 
in Dr. King. And here's Harry Belafonte saying, well, I've got some money. Right. I believe in what you're doing. I can help. And there was a genuine friendship there, but also Belafonte really was committed to the work to his own detriment in some cases, especially when it came to his career. Yeah. And one of the great privileges for me was that I got to interview people like Dick Gregory and Harry Belafonte. I spent Mm -hmm. three and a half hours at Belafonte at his home in New York. And these are people who knew King really well and were able to talk about the the dynamic in his marriage and how um, he and Coretta not only got along, but how she helped guide the movement. Uh, These are people who really knew the Kings intimately. You know, to your point, Belafonte and Dick Gregory and, and a lot of these people from Hollywood understood that they had a kind of power to shape culture, to shape public opinion in a way that, you know, people might not, like my parents might not have been tuned into the words of activists. But when Harry Belafonte or Sidney Poitier came on TV or when Louis Armstrong stood up and, and complained about the, the treatment of the, the kids trying to integrate the schools in Little Rock, that gets through to like the white folks like my parents in, in, you know, in the suburbs of New York. King recognized that this was an important part of the struggle, too, that he really needed these celebrities to magnify what he was saying. And to force people who maybe weren't receptive to to think differently about civil rights. Those guys are are, are really uh, important to this story. And Coretta, coming back to Coretta, who was so ahead of her time in so many ways. And you even say this in the book, too. The women made it possible for the movement to become a mass movement, not only because they're supporting their families and their husbands, but they're also doing the work amongst themselves. And in fact, Coretta is the woman who brings King more to an anti-war stance when it comes to Vietnam. Because again, like J. Edgar Hoover, the Vietnam War was very popular until it wasn't. And in that moment, King is coming out and saying, well, no, I've always believed in peace. This war is immoral. It's unjust. We have to stop it now. And that's when you start to really see people shift. So you've got the whole undermining by the FBI. You've got Johnson losing faith in him because of the FBI. And now Johnson's really mad, really mad because Dr. King is coming out and saying, no, no, this war is garbage. This war is just the worst idea ever. So for you, I mean, obviously, you know that that was sort of the turning point. I mean, we all know that that's a big turning point in the relationship. But what did you find in the new releases of the FBI tapes that may have pushed it even closer to what's in the book? Well, I think one of the things I learned is that Hoover was much more um, aggressive in, in trying to destroy that relationship between King and, and Johnson. No question about that. Mm-hmm. And Johnson was not the passive recipient of these FBI documents. Um, he was he was encouraging Hoover. In some ways, that just it's it's incredibly deceitful. And it's, it's a little bit like you know reminds me of Nixon and Watergate, where right. he's he feels like he has to know what. Um, his enemies are are up to, and and he's treating King like an enemy, like the opposition, as opposed to, you know, arguably his most important ally. And it gets worse because by the end, um, you know, Hoover and the FBI are you know producing memos saying that King is our number one threat. Mm-hmm. And there's a memo early in '68 saying, um, I call it the Messiah memo, that there's no threat anymore of Malcolm becoming the Black Messiah. Stokely right. Carmichael is too much of a fringe character. It's really King who represents the greatest threat to become the Black Messiah and to lead a true revolution in this country. And that's shocking when you think about the fact that King's values were all derived from the Bible and that he 
was a true moral leader who was trying to bridge the gaps between people. And for his government to treat him that way is shocking. But the FBI circulates this memo to every um, office, every FBI office in the country saying, we must disrupt, we must destroy, we must render him ineffective, whatever it takes. And you're creating the kind of environment, and I think they know this, in which there might be some lone gunman out there who decides to take this into his own hands because this is what American government wants. This is what a patriot should do. And that's, to me, one of our greatest tragedies. Yeah. And also on top of that, because I think you're absolutely right about all of it, on top of it, in 66, Congress swings to the Republicans. Johnson comes out and he says, well, it's the liberals and it's labor, but it's Martin Luther King in Chicago. And you and I have just talked about how Chicago didn't really work. King was still considered an outsider. He didn't make the inroads that he thought he was going to be able to. And yet here's Johnson coming back and saying, no, that's the exact moment. And I'm wondering what? I don't understand. Can you explain yeah, that? Johnson thinks that King is creating this sense of lawlessness, that he's creating this sense that America's broken, that um, th there's rioting in the streets. Um, and, and Johnson blames King in part for this. And then when King starts speaking out against the Vietnam War, that's when it really goes too far for Johnson that, you know, now he's just out to get me. Johnson takes this personally. And I think Johnson's losing it, to be honest. I think he's He's, he's losing his grasp on his ability to really properly assess the big picture here because he's taking it personally. He feels like, you know, this war is destroying his presidency and it's not my fault. Uh, you know, it's, it's King's fault for calling attention to the disaster of this war. King becomes the um, one who's getting beat up for it when he's really just trying to call out what he believes. In. And, and again, you know, he's calling on his religious values. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's a prophet and we, we, tend to kill our profits in this country. So I want to come back to Malcolm X for a second, because you mentioned him slightly earlier. And yes, he was murdered before Dr. King. Part of me wonders that if they had both been able to live out their lives as they should have been, what would that have relationship possibly have been like? And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I mean, I do love this Peniel Joseph book, um, which is a joint biography of the two of them called The Sword and the Shield. Do you have an opinion? Yeah, it's a great book, by the way, and by Peniel Joseph. I do have an opinion about it. I think that they had a lot more in common um, than they did have differences, and the the media tried to uh, provoke those differences, and still does today. And I think, you know, had they both lived, they clearly were already beginning to find more common ground. I mean, uh, Malcolm shows up in Selma, and King's in jail, and and says to um, Coretta, you know, um, let him know that if I can be the distraction. Uh, maybe people will see that things could be, you know, a lot scarier if I'm if I'm the one being heard. So maybe that helps Dr. King, you know, um, in some way. I think that they they recognized they had a lot more in common, and and Malcolm toward the end was even beginning to, you know, get more involved in politics. And I think they were they they would have found more common ground. And one of the the things I discovered in my research that I was that is new and that I was really amazed by was that Playboy magazine interview with King, which yeah. is the longest interview King ever did, was was falsified. It, what? They changed King's <laughs> quote. This is Alex Haley, who's doing the interview. And okay. Haley, we now know, did have a, some, some plagiarism problems, um, among other things. Yeah. He changed King's quote. King did not say those incendiary things about Malcolm. He did not say that Malcolm was wrong for turning everything into violence. We need to correct the record, and we need to understand that these guys were more allied than we tend to think. Yeah, I I just I think they both could have done amazing, amazing things, because we're coming up on the 60th anniversary 
of the bombing of the 16th Street Church. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary of uh, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. I mean, this is not that long ago. None of this is that long ago. 1968 was, you know, not that, none of the, 55 years ago. I mean, none of this is ancient history. And one of the things I really appreciate about the book, though, is, as you said, you're trying to write a much more intimate portrait. And so here we've got Coretta in a way that, you know, if you've read her autobiography, certainly you have a fuller portrait of her. But I think not everyone has quite the idea that you have, you know, the role you've given her and brought her back into the forefront and what have you. But also, it seems that Dr. King was hospitalized at least a few times for exhaustion or depression, it looks like. Yeah. And that also goes to um, helping us better understand the important role Coretta played. And I want to mention that, um, you know, I asked Harry Belafonte, what was it about Coretta that, that made Martin fall in love with her? Because he had a lot of girlfriends and, and a lot of beautiful, intelligent women uh, who uh, he went out with and who loved him and or, or at least liked him a whole lot. Belafonte said, well, it was because she was a more experienced activist than he was at that point. She had, yeah. you know, really been involved at Antioch in, in all of these protests. And she, I think uh, what he said was that King was really blown away by her passion and her intelligence and her experience as an activist. Mm-hmm. And and she led him much of the way. Like she really, even though she had to stay home and take care of the kids and, and King was pretty sexist in his views about the role of the woman in the household. Nevertheless, Coretta was pushing all the time. And she was out front um, on Vietnam. She was out front on a lot of these things. She was also aware that that her husband needed support emotionally. That it wasn't just you know being home to cook for him. That he suffered emotionally. He was depressed at times. His friends said they thought it was clinical depression. Mm-hmm. Um, he okay. was hospitalized numerous times, and you can hear again on these FBI transcripts him saying, "I'd like to stay in the hospital a few more weeks because I'm just wrecked. You know, I'm not right. ready to get out back out into the world." And and Coretta had to hold him up through that too. So somebody needs to write a new Coretta biography soon too. And if they do, you know, call me, I'm happy to help. I think it'll happen at some point. I mean, her book came out in 17 though. So. Right. But it's an autobiography. It's a memoir and it's, and it needs, you know, somebody with the scholarship and research chops needs to dive into that story and maybe find her, her personal letters, which we still haven't found. I was about to say, you mentioned a suitcase that was under her bed that apparently no one has seen hide nor hair of since. Yeah, my biggest regret. And I'm a relentless reporter. I, I spent, you know, two years trying to find certain little folders of information. And it mm-hmm. took me three and a half years to find Daddy King's um, unpublished autobiography. But those blue, the blue suitcase full of personal letters between Martin and Coretta that I did not get a hold of. And I'm guessing uh, maybe one of the King children has that suitcase full of letters right now. And that's my my white whale, <laughs> the blue whale. I get it. I totally get it. What was the biggest surprise for you, though? I mean, you have worked as a journalist for a number of years. You've done major biographies of Muhammad Ali and Lou Gehrig. This is certainly not your first time with shaping this kind of project. I mean, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot of legwork. But did anything surprise you? Well, first of all, I was surprised by how much stuff on King had not yet been discovered because his life has been so well documented. There are at least three um, university libraries dedicated to collecting Mm -hmm. his materials. And yet I found a lot of new stuff. And Mm -hmm. that's, I I think, 
just a testament to the power of biography when somebody has the kind of time that I had and I don't teach, I don't do anything else. I don't write magazine stories. I just spent six years doing nothing but digging and Uh writing. You can find new things about even our most celebrated and most well-documented figures. So um, I hope that people, you know, continue to to, to follow and, and attempt this, this difficult kind of work. I was just surprised at how vulnerable King was and how he let us see that, not just in these recordings on the FBI, but in letters and in conversations with friends. You know, we've, we've treated him, uh, especially since the national holiday, which we, we treat him as a monument now. We teach him in very simplistic terms. Even if you just read his books, which we don't do in our schools, we don't read King's work. Even there, you can see the subtlety, the doubt, as well as the glory and the bravery. And I think that, you know, we need to, we need to accept and, and sort of celebrate that. The subtlety and the doubt and also the anger. And, you know, again, it's the fuller portrait. I mean, I am always amazed when I see his quotes taken out of context. And I'm like, well, I know you clearly do not know where that comes from. <laughs> right. You can say that, but wow, you do not know. And it's kind of fascinating how we've co-opted, you know, things that he said and just taken them straight out of context and been like, well, that looks like a great Instagram post. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, he, his drum major speech in which he's decrying materialism is now used as a car commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've we've corrupted him. And I think that's another good reason to go back and and, you know, really engage with his life and with his words, because as you said, he was angry. Mm-hmm. He saw America, the, the dream that he talked about um, in 1963 turn into a nightmare. He felt like America had lost its way. And the speech, the sermon that he was going to give before he died, the last sermon he planned that mm-hmm. would have been his, you know, the, his next sermon if he hadn't been assassinated was, was all about how America had failed, that, that, right. that the dream had died. And, um, you know, he was angry. He wasn't resigned to it. He was con- committed to continue the fight. I'm also wondering how the media would have covered that speech and what it would have sounded like. Um, you have this anecdote about Robert uh, Roger Mudd being sent to cover the March on Washington, and he was so nervous that he wouldn't have enough content that he barfed in the bushes. <laughs> and I was just like, wow. I Because, you know, my entire experience of Roger Mudd is, you know, a middle-aged man delivering the news kind of thing. But, huh, nervous, barfing in the bushes. Okay. But what do you think would have happened if he'd been able to deliver that speech? Well, he was already falling out of favor. He had plummeted right. off of all of the Gallup polls of the most respected right. Americans. Public opinion was really going against him. And um, one of the things I talk about is if you do a chart of the popularity of the name Martin, by the mid-60s, it's fallen off. A lot of Black families aren't naming their kids Martin anymore. Mm-hmm. And and he was falling out of favor. So I think you would have seen the, the public continue to turn on him and certainly the, the mainstream, the white media continuing to mm-hmm. turn on him. Some of his friends said that his early death may have you know, saved him from a lot of strife, from a lot of mm. uh, of depression because uh, things weren't going well. This SCLC was falling apart, it, funding mm-hmm. was off, and it's not clear what his course would have been. I, of course, think that he would have found a way to still be heard, and I think he would have remained an important moral leader. Look at the way Harry Belafonte, you know, and others, John Lewis, you know, some of them mm-hmm. continued even as society changed, even as uh, the country shifted and the civil rights movement lost momentum or, or, or morphed into something different, they still found a way to be heard. And I'm confident King would have done that. He was not going to you know, retire to, to, to the Riviera. No, I think you're right. Part of what is slightly hard going in this book is seeing so many comparisons to life right now. And the idea that, you know, you're covering, I mean, you you do cover his 
youth and graduate school and all of that. But the soul of the thing is 11 years. It's 11 years. I feel like there are pieces of this book that make me think we've made no progress whatsoever. And yet at the same time, the work that came before was shockingly advanced for its time. Well, I wrote this book, much of it during the Trump administration, during George Floyd protests, during um, Charlottesville and all of these other you know, horrifying moments in, in recent history. And of course, you can't help but draw parallels and to really feel sad that King was talking about these very same things. I mean, we forget that the March on Washington included a, a, a call to end police brutality, that it called for reparations, that it said America had written a, 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 a bankrupt check to, to Black Americans, that it mm-hmm. had never fulfilled its promise, that jailing Black people was never going to be the answer, but it seemed to be the answer that Americans liked the best, white Americans liked the best. King was saying all these things you know, 60 years ago. So it was painful to to watch the news uh, during this time and writing this book. Of course, that has to inform you know the way I'm writing, and I think that's the important thing about biographies is that they exist in at least two times. They exist in the time you're writing about, the time you're writing, and then for the reader, the time you're reading. And that kind of engagement is what makes a biography so such a special thing. And I have to say, King of Life is deeply satisfying read. It's also the way you've structured it. It's the way you write. I mean, you do tend to write with a novelist's eye for detail, which I appreciate because, I mean, I do want to blow up my brain and, you know, sit with other people's lives and whatnot. But at the same time, I don't want to feel like I'm being fed my cultural vegetables. And you make it very easy (laughs) to read some very difficult stuff. So can we talk about your style for a second? Can we talk about some of the influences? I know you've always worked or you had always worked in newspapers until you started writing these very big biographies. So Let's talk about who you love to read and and who's influenced you the most. Wow, good question. I mean, if you go way back, um, you know, to my newspaper days, I was reading, you know, Calvin Trilling and Susan Orlean and trying to be a better journalist. And yep. you know, a lot of these New Yorker writers, Frank DeFord and Sports Illustrated is one of my huge early influences. And and these are people who have an enormous curiosity about the world and are just and every story they tell, it's as if they've discovered this for the first time. So, you know, John McPhee is writing a tennis match as if. He's the first person to mm-hmm. see a tennis match, right? And I try to bring that to, to my work. I want to write a, a really informed biography of King, but I want to introduce you to him as if you've never heard of him or met him before and understand how he came to be. So I try to go into it as if like I'm the first person to tell this mm-hmm. story. And I do learn from my other writers. I don't, and I do, I, I read almost all, you know, all fiction when I'm working on a book because uh, I'm reading a ton of. I can, you know, turn the camera and show you all the books I'm reading when I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, there you go. when I'm when I'm doing this work. Uh, but in terms of like my writerly brain, I'm reading mm-hmm. fiction. I'm reading Tolstoy. I'm reading the best storytellers in the world and trying to figure out how to really use detail and color and character development and pacing um, to to make the story work. I'm not an academic, and in and in some ways that that frees me. Mm-hmm. To, to tell the story the way that I think will be the smartest and the most um, appealing and entertaining. And as a reader, I thank you for that because really, I, this was a pleasure. I mean, as much as there is difficult stuff in the book and you leave nothing out, but it's also, it feels so of the moment. It feels so necessary. It feels urgent. Like this book feels urgent and intimate, which is a really hard act to pull off. Um, not everyone can do that. So thank you from this reader. Wow, I'm flattered. Thank you. What are you working on next? <laughs> the, 
This is the big hard question. I have not yet chosen a subject for my okay. next book. Uh, I've got a bunch of little projects. I'm working on some TV and and documentary stuff, which I'm super excited about. And I've got a couple of ideas for the next book, but I I, I haven't settled on one yet. Okay, that's fair enough. We'll wait. We can be Thanks. patient. I, I hope <laughs> I hope I figure it out quickly because I really love doing this, and I start to get antsy if I don't have something to really sink my teeth into. And having read King, I, it shows that you like what you're doing. It shows that you like the chase and it shows that you care about the sentences and the structure and everything else. It's really, it's a pleasure to read this book. So Jonathan, I thank you so much. King of Life is out now. And there's also the Muhammad Ali biography. There's the Lou Gehrig. And I know I'm missing a couple of other books. Jackie Robinson. There we uh, go. Al Capone, The Birth of the Pill. Everybody always forgets about the pill book. There's lots of stuff that you can experience with uh, Jonathan after this. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books for this special double shot episode. I'm Mark. I'm at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, but I'm joined by two fantastic booksellers who are going to recommend books for King of Life and Our Migrant Souls. I've got Jamie over in Kansas and Madison in LA. Jamie, why don't you go ahead and kick us off today? All right. So if you are looking for another definitive biography, um, like the King biography of another civil rights icon um, to kind of act as a companion and to learn about the other key players in that struggle, then I think you'd be hard pressed to find one that has more accolades than The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X by Les Payne. Uh, So Les Payne is a journalist who died in 2018. And so this book was published posthumously by his daughter and research partner, um, Tamara Payne, and she's listed as the co-author. Les spent 30 years researching Malcolm X uh, before he wrote this book or while he was working on this book. This is really considered at this point the definitive biography of Malcolm X. Um, After its release in 2020, it won both the National Book Award for nonfiction and um, the Pulitzer Prize for biography, among a number of other prizes and mentions. And um, if you think back to everything that was happening in the world in 2020, you know that this book came at a time that was marked by um, racism and police shootings and riots. So a really tumultuous time when it was published. So what the pains have done with their hundreds of hours of interviews and their decades of research talking to people who knew Malcolm X is to draw really what is the most complete portrait of his life from start to finish with a particular focus on really the key moments that they think made him the person that he was. So these are moments of great importance, formative moments from his childhood, like the death of his father. I think he was six years old when his father died in a streetcar accident. Um, that may not, in fact, have actually been an accident to his time behind bars as a young adult, um, where he came to the Nation of Islam, to his broad political and outspoken activism as an adult, to describing a meeting he had with the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan in Atlanta, which kind of put him in the position of having to sit and face and talk with a bunch of terrorists um, who were part of his life from a young age. Uh, And so the details, I I guess, are what we um, get in this biography. There's, like I said, the interviews with people who knew him, we get this 
beautiful picture uh, painted of his life. And this picture is as intimate as anything that we've read um, up until this point. It really brings to the forefront the emotion of his actions and his words. And so it's not about big reveals. It's really about um, taking the mood of of the time um, and taking the pulse of each of these events, um, which are all known to us already, uh, and kind of getting the entire story and, and, and really painting a complete picture of him. Uh, and so this, I think, would be an excellent companion to um, Ig's book about Martin Luther King. And that's, again, it's got a long title. It's The Dead Are Rising, uh, The Life of Malcolm X by Les Payne and Tamara Payne. Madison, what have you got for us? Yeah, so when I was thinking of things to recommend for our migrant souls, I was thinking kind of more like pulling from like kind of like a different cultural aspect, which is why I chose Women in the Picture, What Culture Does with Female Bodies by art historian Catherine McCormack. So what she does in this book is kind of take her knowledge of what she has from art history, from male artists, female artists, different artists, and kind of puts all that research together and kind of forms it with what we see in kind of like society today with like social media, movies, even how women are represented in art today. Um, I will preference by saying this book is probably one of the more like opinionated books I've read, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think you can definitely tell where her opinion lies, but she does back it up. So it is like a backed up opinion, but I will say this book is opinionated, which I like because then I feel like you can have like really rich, engaging conversations after you finish reading, if you find someone else who has also read the book. But what she does in this book is she like shows and kind of teaches us to see and like value women in their bodies, their lives. She goes to different women in history and how and in art, they kind of have roles. You see them represented as like Venus, maiden, wife, mother, sometimes even monster. And it's all kind of how women have been coded by like a patriarchal culture, kind of like the roles in which women were supposed to like conform and fit into and how sometimes it can be like challenged. So what she does kind of like first is like illuminates those assumptions made from these stereotypes. Some of them are large stereotypes. Some of them are kind of more hidden, uh, which is why I think sometimes you kind of have to like go back and like little reread to see if you like missed something the first time or if you can find if it was just a blatant obvious stereotype. Um, so she looks mainly, I would say, at like Western art. She looks at fashion photography, ads, social media. And then she like counters that with how women artists portrayed women. And she uses artists like Ringgold, uh, Lacey, Walker, a bunch of others, and kind of shows how they formed like an alternate depiction of women and their sexuality, their race, the power they have. So I think this is like a really good like book that you can read that has like a contrast and how in the culture of like Western art, we kind of put like women into those like stereotypical boxes, but also how we like break the mold, which I liked because it's kind of like, you know, when you do a research paper in school and they're like, have an argument, but then like back it up and show both sides. I felt like this was a very well-written, elaborate kind of one of those. I think she did it really, really well. And I think it helps that she herself is an art historian. 
So she's bringing her expertise to this book and she's in a realm in which she knows really, really well because she's studied it for so long. So I really liked it. Um, I think it has a lot of different representation in which you can find, especially for like women in art and different forms of media, which is why I chose Women in the Picture, What Culture Does with Female Bodies. And that was by Catherine McCormack. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. Great picks as expected. I, you never let me down. But that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pour It Over. Uh, please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. I'm at my store in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow me at BN Westchester. Jamie, where can we find you? I'm in Leewood, Kansas. You can follow me and my home store at BN Leewood KS. And Madison, where are you at? I am in Los Angeles and you can follow my store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.